So my grandfather, Rabbi Gorelick, uh, he, together with my grandmother, she should live in Be Well, uh, they, they uh, on, in 1958, the Rebbe sent them to be his representatives, his shluchen, to start a permanent Chabad presence in Milan, Italy. And it's interesting, I mean, they, they were very happy to go and they looked, looked forward to representing the Rebbe and doing the Rebbe's work. Uh, but at the same time, my grandfather very much wanted to stay. Uh, you know, he always talks about the idea of leaving, leaving Brooklyn then. It wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't about leaving a place where you can get kosher milk and kosher meat easily and have an easy cheder, an easy, you know, a place that you could send your children for Jewish education. He said that, that wasn't the issue. So the issue was that so long that you lived in Brooklyn, you were in close proximity to the Rebbe, you were able to see the Rebbe all the time, learn from the Rebbe directly, and one of the things that he missed the most as a result of leaving, uh, leaving Brooklyn and going off to Italy was the Fabrenium. That was, that was what he, you know, that, that was the, the highlight for any chassid being in, the, in close proximity to the Rebbe was to be at the Fabrenium. The Fabrenium was a time where the Rebbe really shared of himself. He shared Torah. And, uh, and, and, and Fabrengen was really the format in which the Rebbe educated the Hasidim and really shaped an entire generation. It was all from the Fabrengen. So my grandmother says uh, an interesting uh, conversation that the two of them had as they were embarking on their, their uh, one-way trip to Italy to move there. He told her at one point, he said, you're going to see. There will come a time that once a month, for the final Shabbat of the month, I'm going to be in New York. The last Shabbat of the month is called Shabbat Mevarchim. It's the Shabbat that we bless the new month. The Rebbe had a custom that he would have a Fabrengen every single Shabbos Mevarchim. That Shabbat, the last Shabbat of the month, like clockwork, the Rebbe would have a Fabrengen. Um, any other Shabbat, it depended. You know, it depends what, you know, what, what the schedule was and, and if there was a special date or whatever it was. But the last Shabbat of the month, you knew for a fact you could depend on it, that the Rebbe would have a Febrengen. So my grandfather, what he wanted most was that even though he's stationed in Italy, to be a rabbi there and to do the Rebbe's work in Italy, what he wanted most was that every once a month he should be able to come back to New York and to be present that Shabbat in New York to be by the Febrengen. And so she told him, she says, you know, I have no problem if you do it, but, it, but if it messes up our, our position, if it messes up our ability to be in Italy, I'm not going to be too happy about that. Um, and it turns out that, that about 10 years later, he started to, uh, to come to New York every month. Uh, there, there, was, there was some, perhaps more than a decade or 15 years that like clockwork, you could depend on it that Rabbi Gorelick would be in New York for that, for that Shabbos. Um, and he did it simply because this, you know, the Fabrengen was, was something that he very much wanted to participate in and to be witness to and to be able to learn from the Rebbe. Um, you know, a Fabrengen that happens on a weekday that was recorded. So you could kind of, uh, you know, experience it, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a different way, even though in those years, 1958, you couldn't really depend on recordings. But a Shabbat Fabrengen was, was real history in the making and, and there was no recording of it. So if you didn't experience it, you missed it. So um, with that, I guess uh, it would be most appropriate to learn uh, every week on Sunday, we learn, uh, a part of a Febrengen, of the Rebbe's Febrengen. And this week, uh, I know this is something that definitely my grandfather would be very proud and happy that we are learning uh, the Rebbe's teachings together. And so I dedicate today's class to his memory. Um, 
And so let us begin. But before, before we go on to the actual Sikha, the Fabrengen, that we are going to learn, I'd like to give you a little bit of a background of the general topic that we are going to be discussing. In 1964, the Rebbe's mother passed away, the Rebbe Tzinchana Schneerson. When she passed away, the Rebbe started a custom. He started a, he, he, he started a new project. And that was that by the Fabrengans, by every single Shabbat Fabrengan, uh, we're losing people here, by every, by every Shabbat Fabrengan, the Rebbe would teach Rashi. On, in, on, the, on the Chumash, on the Torah, on the Bible, there is a commentary that was written about 800 years ago, approximately, by a great Jewish leader. His name was Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki. He is known by his acronym, Rashi. He lived in France. Uh, and his commentary is the most basic and most important commentary on the Torah. Now, for, for all those 800 years since his commentary uh, hit the Jewish world, Jews have been studying it. A great, a, a, in great depth, and there are at least 100 commentaries on Rashi. It's an entire literature for itself. So it's not just learning Torah, you're actually learning Torah and trying to understand how Rashi is teaching us the Torah. The Rebbe approached the entire literature of Rashi in an entirely unique way. The Rebbe basically revolutionized the entire study of Rashi, and he did so by every week, or every time that there was a Febrengan, by taking a Rashi, a teaching of Rashi that was associated with that week's Parsha, and analyzing it at great depth. Now, the Rebbe would take one Rashi, and the Rebbe would ask upwards of 10 to 15 questions just on one Rashi. And, and it, was, it was so deep and so exciting and so interesting that uh, Hasidim actually looked forward to these Febrengans for the Rashi. That was part of what was, and to the point, to the point, that uh, the Fabrengen would happen Shabbat afternoon at 1.30. At 10 o'clock, when the Rebbe would walk into the synagogue for prayers, they would announce which Rashi the Rebbe is going to discuss by that Fabrengen. The Rebbe would, would tell someone, one of the people that were there, which Rashi he was going to discuss. And that would give the Hasidim a chance to actually review that Rashi well, to go through some of the commentaries. And so that when they're hearing the Rebbe speak about it, they're very familiar with the concepts, and the Rebbe is going to take them on a journey through Rashi. This started in 1964, continued through 1988. So for those, let's say, 25 years, the Rebbe was, was really educating us on how to approach Rashi. What we are going to be learning today is a sampling of one of those sikhas, of one of those talks, those teachings. And it's on this week's parsha. The parsha begins, let's read it in source number one. We're on page two. God spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelites and have them bring me an offering. Uh, the translation is a little bit not so exact. The yikhuli, they shall take for me an offering. Take my offering from everyone whose heart impels him to give. This is the offering you should take from them. Gold, silver, copper, greenish blue wool, dark red wool, crimson wool, fine linen and goat's hair. Red-dyed ram skins, tachash skins, and acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and the sweet-smelling incense. I don't even know how to say this word. And sardonyxes, and other precious stones for the ephod and breastplate. 
They shall make me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. This is immediately following the revelation at Sinai after God gave the Torah to the Jewish people. Now he's telling us the mitzvah of building a dwelling place for God, a permanent dwelling place for God in the Jewish camp, which initially was known as the Mishkan. That was a temporary dwelling place that constantly moved together with them in the desert. The ultimate goal was that when they would reach the land of Israel, they would set up something more permanent until finally they would reach Jerusalem and they would build the Holy Temple. So this is the, like the first, uh, the, 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 the beginning stages of the Holy Temple. God wants that everyone should be involved, everyone should be part of building the Holy Temple, of, of this, of, of building the Mishkan. But when they make the, the appeal for building the Mishkan, they're not going to give money, they are going to give materials. All of the raw materials needed to fashion this Mishkan, this tabernacle, was donated by the people. And there's a list of 13 or 15 different types of materials that were needed for the Mishkan. One of the most important parts is the walls, right? That, that's the, that's the, you know, the, the actual building, the walls, was they were made of acacia wood, these tall cedar trees. They chopped them down and they had these long beams, and those beams were used to, um, to build the walls of the Mishka. And again, these were, these were temporary walls. They, they, would, they would set them up and then they would take them down when they had to move, etc. So Rashi, on, um, on the words acacia wood, on Atzei Shittim, he says the following comment. Where did they get acacia wood in the desert? This is a desert. You don't have acacia wood growing there. Rabbi Tanhuma explained, our forefather Jacob foresaw through divine inspiration that the Israelites were destined to build a tabernacle in the desert. And he therefore brought cedars to Egypt and planted them and directed his children to take them along when they would leave Egypt. This is a teaching from Rabbi Tanchuma. Rabbi Tanchuma is from the Talmudic sages, and he is the author of what is called what, one of one of the texts of Medrash, um, the, 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 the body of Medrash, which is a lot of the history of the Torah. It's interesting to note that when you read the Torah, the Torah is not a history book, and this is actually important for for what the Rebbe is going to explain in this talk, Torah is not a history book. And there are many, many details of, of, of Jewish recorded history that are not recorded in the actual five books of Moses. And all of that was transmitted from generation to generation until in the times of the Talmud or the Mishnah, when they started to transcribe and officially uh, codify or canonize uh, many different texts and Jewish traditions, so many of those traditions of historical facts were, were uh, compiled in, uh, in books that were known as Medrash. And there are different types of Medrashim. One of them is called Medrash Tanchuma because it was essentially uh, compiled and was mainly the teachings and the, and the traditions that were received by Rabbi Tanchuma. So Rashi, in explaining where the Jewish people had acacia wood in the desert, he brings a, a quote from a tradition that is in the Medrash Tanchuma that in fact, they had these cedar woods because of the foresight and the divine inspiration of Jacob. When, you know, going back, Yosef uh, was sold into slavery. He ended up becoming the viceroy of Egypt. And there was a famine and Jacob, Jacob's sons came down to buy food. And he made a whole setup over there. Anyway, long story short, it came time for Jacob to come down to Egypt 
to, uh, to be reunited with his son, Joseph. And uh, he had to come down to Egypt because there was no food anywhere else. The only place that there was food was in Egypt and Joseph was going to provide them uh, with food. So Jacob began to journey. Let's go to source number two. This is also from a different medrash. He says, Jacob began the journey, taking all his possessions, and he arrived in Be'er Sheva. On the way to Egypt, he stopped off in Be'er Sheva. Why did he go there? Rabbi Nachman said, he went to cut down the cedars which had been planted by Abraham, his grandfather, in Be'er Sheva. Abraham, a hundred and something years beforehand, had planted cedar trees in Be'er Sheva. Yaakov, when he was on the way down to Egypt, he knew that the Jewish people would ultimately leave Egypt. They would be in the desert and they would build a tabernacle. In order to build the tabernacle, they would need to have cedar woods. So he went down to Be'er Sheva chopped down the cedar woods that were there, brought them down to Egypt, planted them in Egypt, and he gave instructions to his children that when the Redeemer would come and they would leave Egypt, they should make sure not to leave without these cedar trees because they will need it in order to build a Mishkan. Before even getting into the details here, just this story is a fascinating concept of Jewish tradition, of the connection between generations. It's not that by the exodus of Egypt, you know, Moses came and he took this, you know, this, this random nation that, that were slaves and he brought them out and they were just going out and they didn't know what to do with themselves and they were led to the, to the sea and the sea split and then they were led to Sinai. They knew exactly what they were doing, they knew exactly where they were going. They had a tradition, they knew what the future held for them. They couldn't take it in their own hands. They weren't allowed to just leave Egypt like that, they had to wait for the right time. There had to be clear that it was a sign from heaven. There had to be a redeemer that came as a messenger of God. However, they were well aware that redemption would happen. They were well aware that they would spend some time in the desert before making it into the land of Israel. And they were well aware that before going into the land of Israel, they would, they would already have a type of mishkan, a type of a, a, a temple that would be a place where God would be revealed. And this is all happening. This entire tradition is, is accompanying them through these cedar woods these cedar woods that they would ultimately build the tabernacle with. So, now the Rebbe is going to analyze Rashi. Now, I'll just warn you before we get into this. It might seem, before we get into more details, uh, it might seem frustrating how the Rebbe is analyzing Rashi with such detail, you know, really splitting hairs here. But we'll see that the literature of Rashi was written very specific, and there's a reason why there's over a hundred commentaries on Rashi himself. And after the Rebbe splits all of the hairs and comes to some very deep and beautiful explanation, we're going to see how it all comes together to, to really communicate to us a very deep and powerful lesson in our lives today. All right, so page number four. Uh, this is the beginning of the Sikha of the Rebbe's talk. In the beginning of this week's Torah portion, God lists the items needed for the tabernacle. This is the offering you should take from them, greenish-blue wool, dark-red wool, crimson wool, fine linen and goat's hair, red-dyed ram skins, tachash skins, and acacia wood. Rashi comments, where did they get acacia wood in the desert? Rabbi Tanchuma explained, our forefather Jacob foresaw through divine inspiration that the Israelites were destined to build a tabernacle in the desert, and he therefore brought cedar woods to Egypt and planted them and directed his children to take them along when they would leave Egypt. Right? We just learned that verse and the Rashi. Rashi's commentary demands explanation. 
The suggestion that Jacob, on his way to Egypt, brought along cedar wood for the tabernacle, which would be built 210 years into the future, is clearly a, hom a homiletic explanation. But why is he compelled to interpret the verse homiletically? We can suggest a far simpler explanation. You're wondering where the Jewish people had acacia wood in the desert? Simple. The Israelites purchased acacia wood from merchants of the surrounding nations. What's the big deal? The Jewish people weren't in some bubble. They were able to send messengers to the surrounding you know, areas, and they were able to purchase uh, 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 you know, different, uh, different things that they would need. So what's the big deal? What's the big deal to obtain some acacia wood? They were very rich. They had a lot of money. With the right amount of money, you can get anything anywhere. And it's no big deal to obtain acacia wood in the desert. So that's the first question. Why did Rashi have to go and tell us a story about Jacob and about Abraham and something that basically was, you know, it's connecting hundreds of years together, which not that we're doubting the truth of that story, but it would seem simpler to interpret it that they just got the materials they needed from the surrounding nations. Secondly, now this is going to knock you off your chair. Rashi usually omits the name of the rabbi who taught the explanation. When Rashi explains something in his commentary, almost all of his commentary is sourced in the Talmud, in the Medrash, somewhere. He doesn't make things up. But he rarely quotes the rabbi in whose name this tradition comes from. And he rarely quotes the source for it. He just brings it as, a, you know, this is the explanation. When he mentions a person by name, it is because knowing the name will help us understand some difficulty in the passage. If so, in our case, why does Rashi tell us that this explanation was proposed by Rabbi Tanchuma? Now, this is a, an entirely new way. Well, it's not entirely new. There are, uh, there, there, you know, there, the Rebbe did have a tradition of this type of study, but it's a very unique type of study to go in and, and, to, and to analyze a comment of Rashi, and, and to say that the fact that Rashi quotes the rabbi in whose name this tradition has been recorded, and that knowing which rabbi it was is going to help us understand some type of difficulty in understanding the verse. Where do these rules come from? The rules about Rashi in general, whenever you, whenever you study a literature, any type of literature, there are certain rules. You have to understand who wrote that literature, what they were thinking, and when you analyze their text, you have to go based on the rules that they set forth in how their text should be read. And the same thing is true with regard to Rashi. So let's go to source number three. His commentary is literal. Rashi's goal is to explain the literal meaning of the text. In his own words, I have only come to explain the straightforward meaning of the scripture. This tells us that Rashi does not want to always bring stories, ideas that have to stretch the imagination, that are homiletical. Rashi wants to bring something that, is, that, is, that, that, that makes complete sense and is straightforward and understood directly from the text in the Torah. Then there's another rule of Rashi. Rashi doesn't cite sources. Although he calls his interpretations from the teachings of the sages, Rashi doesn't normally cite the name of the rabbi who proposed the explanation because his goal is to explain the literal meaning of the text. In other words, the interpretation must grow out of the text itself. 
and the name of the sage is therefore irrelevant. So that's the general rule. Knowing where this explanation comes from is not the point because Rashi wants that the strength of the explanation should be based off of the text itself. Rashi wants to guide the five-year-old, the beginner to Chumash, the, the newcomer to Torah study. He wants to guide them through the actual text and show them how the text itself is suggesting this explanation. And therefore, when Rashi does quote the sage, there must be a good reason why he is quoting that sage. So, two main questions. Number one, why does Rashi depend on some explanation that forces us to understand, to, to, uh, it, it stretches our imagination that Jacob brought cedar wood and that Avram was the one to initially plant them in Beresheva. This whole long explanation, why do we need it? Just say that they got the materials from the neighboring countries and that's it. And secondly, why did Rashi bother mentioning that this explanation comes from Rabbi Tamchuma a thousand years before him? It, you know, if the, if the explanation is not supported by the text, so then it's not a good explanation. And if it is supported by the text, why do I have to know it was Rabbi Tanchuma, right? Cat 22. So let's continue on page six. The answer lies in Torah's choice of words. The words are like this. The li truma literally means, and have them take for me an offering. Take my offering, the offering you should take from them. These verses seem to imply that all the necessary items were already among the possessions of the Israelites. These weren't items that needed to be obtained from other sources. Moses was merely commanded to take it from the people. So here's the thing, Rashi is reading the Torah. And what does the Torah say? He doesn't say, let's make an appeal and they're going to provide, they're going to provide all the materials, they're going to give enough money that we should get all of the materials. No, it says a word that is very specific, the yikhu, take it, what should, you, what should you take? Take from them gold, silver, copper, these different types of wools, take it from them, they already have it, just take it from them, let them give you what they already have in their possessions. What are one of those things they already have in their possessions? Acacia wood. Those are one of the materials that you need. If some items, I'm continuing in the second paragraph here on page six, if some items were not available within the community and needed to be obtained from the surrounding nations, the Torah should have given this command in more general terms using words like obtain, instead of just the very specific verb of take. Take is very specific. Take means it's there. You just, they just have to bring it from their tent, from their possession, to the community's possession. That means that all of these 15 materials, the wool, the gold, the silver, the copper, all of it, the oil, the diamonds, the stones for the breastplate, all of it is already there. They just have to bring it. In other words, they didn't accept any checks. There's no checks. There's no cash. We don't take any of that stuff. We're going to take the actual materials we need, in order to build the, the, the tabernacle. Therefore, that's the, the rabbi continues, therefore, Rashi reached the conclusion that all the items listed in the verse were available within the Israelite encampment and needed only to be taken. When God says, have them bring me an offering, this is the offering you should take from them, it means 
that those items should be taken from among the possessions the Israelites already own. So, Rashi must now explain how the Israelites actually owned all these items and didn't need to obtain them from other sources. Now, at this point, you can't, you can't, you can't fall back on the obvious thing. Oh, they went, to, they went to Office Depot and they bought it, right? They went to the surrounding nations and they bought it. No, the Torah says it's there already. Nope. So now Rashi has to find, do we have any type of historical record of Acacia wood being in this Jewish camp? Why, why would that wood be there? You're, you're leaving. Imagine someone comes and wants to take you out of El Paso. We're going into the desert. Imagine you would take with yourself a whole bunch of beams of wood. What are you, what are you taking beams of wood for? You can't build it in the, the desert. There's no point of taking beams of wood with you. So Rashi found the Medrash. This interpretation that Jacob was divinely inspired to bring cedarwood to Egypt seems to be a homiletic explanation. It seems unlikely that Jacob began preparations for the tabernacle 210 years before God's commandment, bringing cedars to Egypt and planting them there so that they would grow to maturity and then be fashioned into panels 10 cubits tall. It would be more logical to assume that the wood was simply purchased through the merchants of the surrounding nations. Page 7, therefore, Rashi emphasizes in his question, where did they get acacia wood in the desert? Meaning, all the items listed needed to be available among the Israelites themselves, without the need to search and obtain them from other sources. This brought Rashi to his question, where did they get acacia wood in the desert? He therefore came to the conclusion that Jacob foresaw through divine inspiration that the Israelites were destined to build a tabernacle in the desert, and he therefore brought cedars to Egypt and planted them and directed his children to take them along when they would leave Egypt. Now this explanation is supported by the text. The text is telling us that all of these things must be within the camp already. Where did they get wood from? Why would they have big beams of wood? The fact that they had gold and silver and copper. We know that when the Jewish people left Egypt, they were told they're not going to leave until they empty out Egypt of all of their treasures. In fact, every Jew had um, 90 donkeys laden with treasures. So they had plenty of gold and silver and copper, and they had tons of sheep. They had a lot of cattle. So wool, that's not a problem. They had a lot of wool. There's actually a whole discussion of um, the, the dyed wool. It had to already have been dyed, but that's a whole different conversation. But the point is, they had wool in the desert. That's not a question. We have, we have support from the actual text uh, throughout the Torah that as they went into the desert, they had all of these beautiful, wonderful things. In fact, um, there were these precious stones that needed to be obtained for the breastplate. And one of the questions is, where did they have the stones from? As Rashi tells us, another medrash, that when manna fell from heaven, the food fell from heaven, all the Jewish people, they had access to manna, and they would go out and collect. The very, very righteous, the manna would fall right by their door, so they didn't have to go out there and collect. And, in, and together with the manna, precious stones came with it. So the very, very righteous, they had some stones to donate to the, to the temple, to the tabernacle. The point is Rashi is always going to have to find, at least within the context of the materials that were needed for the building of the tabernacle, Rashi is going to have to find a, a good explanation of why it was there. The best explanation Rashi has is that this medrash about Jacob having the foresight that they would need to have the cedars. So 
he took them and he brought them down to Egypt and he gave instructions that whenever they leave, which was 210 years later, they should chop them down and take it out with them. What's left to be explained? Why do we have to quote the name Rabbi Tanchuma? What is the name teaching us? So here the Rebbe goes on to a different level. See, typically the Rebbe says Rashi needs to be understood to the five-year-old, the simple newcomer to the newcomer to the Chumash, the newcomer to the Bible text. But then there is a Talmid Memuloch, the seasoned student. The seasoned student. He's going to ask a deeper question. By the way, um, you know, since we're you know we're talking about my grandfather earlier, I once heard from him. He said, you know, when the Rebbe started to talk about Rashi and to teach Rashi. And he was saying the whole time, look, I'm only talking about what the five-year-old needs to understand. The five-year-old student is going to ask X, Y, and Z, and the answer is A, B, and C, etc. And these Hasidim are standing there. And by the way, they're not little children. These Hasidim, you know, they were learned scholars. You had people that had studied, you know, for, for decades, and they would stand there, they would go out of their minds for uh, the, the way that everyone would analyze the Rashi. And my, father, and my grandfather said that they were once having a conversation, which five-year-old is the Rebbe talking to? Like, which five-year-old is coming up with these questions? Which five-year-old is reading the, the Torah and, and has such deep and interesting questions? So, after some discussion, they came to the conclusion, probably this is how the Rebbe learned the Torah when he was five years old. When the Rebbe was five years old, that's, that's how he was, you know, absorbing this information. That was the only explanation they had, for the, to, you know, to explain this, this brilliant uh, approach to, to the Rashi literature. So here, the Rebbe is going a, a, a step deeper. It says there is, it's not just a five-year-old. It's not just, you know, the, re, the run of the mill, the work-a-day, you know, five-year-old kid that's coming to learn Torah. Now let's talk about the Talmud Memuloch, the seasoned student. By the way, Memuloch comes from the word Melach, which means salt, right? The very first thing you use when you want to season something is you put salt in it. So anyway, the, the salted one, you know, the real, the sharp one, the one that's going to come up with the deeper question. So let's continue on page eight. A seasoned student will ask further, why was it so necessary for Jacob, our forefather, to bring and plant cedars in Egypt for the sake of a tabernacle 210 years later? In other words, like this. If you're telling me that when the Jewish people leave Egypt, when the Jewish people come to the desert, they will ultimately need to build a tabernacle, and they're going to need to have all of the materials there with them. There are many ways that we could arrange that acacia wood should happen to be in the Jewish camp. And there are many ways that it could happen. I mean, Moses could know by divine inspiration before they leave that they would need to have acacia wood, and they'll track down some type of you know, cedar forest and chop, chop down the trees before they leave. Whatever, there's a lot of ways to do it. But, Rashi is telling us that, look, this Medrash about Yaakov has the foresight and he brought them down to Egypt and he planted them in Egypt. And by the way, they're not, they're not uh, native to Egypt. The cedar trees are not native to that region. So he went and he brought trees from Israel, planted them in Egypt in order that they should chop them down and bring them out. In other words, why was that necessary? Why did that whole, in other words, what, what uh, meaning did that process have? Every, everything has a meaning. You can't just tell me that Jacob, when he brought the cedars down to Egypt, it was so that in 210 years, they'll have the wood for the, for, the, for the tabernacle. If it's just about 
that in 210 years they should have the wood, there are many other ways that they could have it. Easier ways. What is there in this entire process of Jacob bringing Israeli cedar trees to Egypt, planting them there, and then taking them away from there 210 years later? Rashi hints to an answer by citing the source of his commentary, Rabbi Tanchuma. Tanchuma stems from the word Tanchumin, which means consolation. Right, the word consolation, for example, when a person is sitting Shiva, when people come to the Shiva house, it's called Nichum Avelim, consoling the mourners. So Tanchuma, Nechama, is consolation. Menachem comes the idea of consolation. So Rabbi Tanchuma, the name Tanchuma is the idea of consolation. Rabbi Tanchuma understood that Jacob's inspiration to plant acacia wood was a form of consolation for the people of Israel. What does that mean? When the Israelites were mired in the Egyptian exile, enslaved, persecuted, and their children put to death, right? Pharaoh said that he's going to take all the newborn boys and throw them into the Nile River. Moses was almost killed that way. Later on, when Moses was already 80-something years old, he was 80 years old, and Pharaoh made a new decree. He was going to slaughter, he, he, he became a leper. He had leprosy. And the doctors, the very smart doctors, they told him, you know, it's the only way that you'll be healed is if you bathe in Jewish baby blood. This makes the Nazis sound tame. And every day they would get a whole shipment of Jewish babies and kill them, and he would bathe in their blood. It was, it was a really horrible time for the Jewish people. So what's happening now? You know, they, they're going to lose hope. They recalled Jacob's promise of redemption. But it wasn't just a story that Jacob tells them that you will be redeemed. And drew inspiration from the site of the cedar wood, which he had personally brought and planted with the vision that they would leave Egypt and build a tabernacle in the desert. The Jewish people were about to give up. You know what they did? They didn't, they didn't just say, Zaydi Yaakov, you know, our grandpa Jacob, he said, he gave us hope that one day there would be a redemption. They would point to that artificial forest, to that man-made forest that wasn't native to the region at all. They would point to that and say, you know where those cedar trees came from? They came from Jacob. You know why he brought them here? Because he told us that one day we would leave this place and we would build a tabernacle for God. So they didn't, it wasn't a tradition of hope. There was a physical sight of hope. They were able to see it. They were able to pinpoint and say, this is our link to a better future. This is a link to the ultimate redemption. In other words, the Israelites in the desert could have obtained acacia for the tabernacle some other way. But to be a source of consolation to the Jewish people, Jacob was compelled to bring along those cedars, plant them in Egypt, and instruct his children to take them along on their return trip. Thus, throughout their entire period of, of subjugation in Egypt, they were able to gaze at those cedars and feel hopeful. Those cedars symbolize their future redemption. This is a message of inspiration for our exile as well. So here we have an answer, right? So now everything makes sense. When the Jewish people are told that they should collect materials and bring it to the tabernacle, they weren't told to go and buy and obtain those materials. They were told to give materials that they already had. 
So you have to say that they already have those materials. Comes the question, where do you get acacia wood from? And so now we have this tradition from Rabbi Tanchuma that Jacob brought the cedar wood, they planted them in Egypt, and they were told to chop them down when they left in order to build a tabernacle. That's all wonderful, but Rashi doesn't, it's not enough. And Rashi says, Rabbi Tanchuma said this. You know why I'm telling you Rabbi Tanchuma said this? Because you're going to ask, why did Jacob have to go through all of that trouble? We could have figured, a thing, we could have figured things out in a different way. Why did it have to be specifically in this way? You know, how, you know how hard it is to transplant an entire forest of trees somewhere else? Like what, what's going on? What's the purpose? And the answer is it's not just about 210 years from now. It's for the entire duration of the exile. During all of those hard times when the Jewish people are about to give up hope, they'll be able to point to these cedar woods and say, this is a physical manifestation of the hope for a better future. This is a message of inspiration for our exile as well. We too live in the darkness of exile, in our own limitations, in a spiritual desert, a place of snakes, scorpions, and thirst. This is, a, this is doubly true in the final moments before the final redemption. Yet we are told by Rabbi Tanchuma, the consoler of the Jewish people, that's his name, his name is Tanchuma, which is the Chumim, consolation, he consoles us and says that we shouldn't be intimidated by our situation. The ultimate goal is to build a tabernacle for God in the desert, to transform the spiritual desert into a sanctuary for God, a dwelling place for God in our world, and then we will merit the rebuilding of a physical sanctuary, the third holy temple. So this Rashi is not just telling us an interesting detail of how they collected the materials needed to build the tabernacle. This Rashi is giving us a very powerful message, not, not just a message of hope, but also the, 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 the method of how hope continues in Jewish tradition. The way Yaakov ensured that his children would continue to have hope throughout the terrible years of exile, it was by giving them something physical to look at, by giving them something real that they could relate to, that they could, that they could really hold on to and say that the hope for redemption, the, the, the vision of a future redemption is a real thing. And I could see it in front of my eyes. And it, it's interesting that there are several other, uh, so, so this was one talk from the Rebbe, this was from the, from the Truma of 1987. But a few weeks earlier, that same year, by a different Febrengian, the Rebbe spoke about another detail of, of uh, you know, our forefathers in Egypt and how something that they did also brought hope to the Jewish people. So let's go straight to it. Let's go to page number 12, and then we'll kind of bring this all together. Page 12. The conclusion of Genesis reads, Joseph died at the age of 110 years. He was embalmed and placed in a tomb in Egypt. This seems to raise a basic question, even for a young student. At the beginning of the Torah portion, if, uh, this is the portion of Vayechi, the final portion of Genesis. So in the beginning of that Torah portion, we read that Jacob told Joseph, do not bury me in Egypt, let me lie with my fathers and bury me in their grave. Clearly, there were two reasons for his request. First, he wanted to be interred with Abraham and Isaac in Marat HaMachpelah in Hebron. Second, he did not want to lie in Egypt, the most decadent society. So for Jacob, it was very important not to be buried in Egypt. He wanted to go to Israel. 
Yet, the final passage seems to emphasize the very opposite about Joseph. He was placed in a tomb in Egypt. He was not buried in the cave of Machpelah, not even in the land of Israel. Of all places, he was buried specifically in Egypt, and he was even embalmed and placed in a tomb, emphasizing that he was there to stay. And, even more than that, at the, at the conclusion of the reading, the congregation calls out, Chazak, Chazak, Benit Chazek, be strong, be strong, and let strength. This is the custom that whenever we finish one of the books of the Torah, at the final verse, once we finish the verse, everyone rises and everyone makes this, this declaration of Chazak, Chazak, Benit Chazek. We just finished the book and we should be strengthened to start new books and to come back to this book, etc. But it's kind of ironic. We just make this whole announcement that Joseph was placed in a tomb in, in Egypt. And we say, be strong, be strong. Like, wow, as if we just said something amazing. In fact, we just said something tragic. That Joseph was forced to stay in Egypt. And he did not, he was not, he didn't have, he wasn't, he wasn't able to be buried in Israel close to his death. The question arises, what strength and inspiration are we to derive from the fact that Joseph was buried in Egypt? How does that help? The answer lies in the next verse. The first verse of Exodus, and these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Exodus begins with the story of the Egyptian, sub, of the Egyptian subjugation and enslavement of the Israelites. Although the Israelites had arrived in Egypt earlier, as described in the Torah portion of Ayigash, they had lived comfortably in Goshen, the most fertile land in the region, where they had thrived and flourished. Only in Exodus, after the demise of Joseph and his brothers and that entire generation, where the Israelites subjugated, enslaved, and persecuted. Before the onset of this terrible period, the Israelites needed an extra dose of encouragement and inspiration. That came in the form of Joseph's burial in Egypt. Joseph, the quintessential provider of the Jewish people, remained with them in their exile, embalmed and preserved in a tomb, awaiting the day of their salvation. Therefore, after reading that he was involved and placed in a tomb in Egypt, we announce, Chazak, Chazak, Merit Chazek, be strong, be strong, and let us be strengthened. Before heading into exile, the Jewish people draw strength to overcome their hardships from the knowledge that they are not alone in their plight. Joseph remains together with them. When they were about to give up hope, they said, no, Joseph is still here. The fact that Joseph is here shows us that he is not in his eternal resting place. He still has to get home. He still has to go to the land of Israel. That's a, we promised him that we would take him out. Here we see the, the, the crucial importance of, of, um, of, of having something tangible to anchor our Jewishness to. And, and I think one of the very, very basic ideas that, that, that emerged from here is that it's not enough just to have Jewish values, Jewish beliefs, Jewish traditions, ideas, stories. We need to have something physical, something palpable that our children, our grandchildren are able to point to. You know, everyone says, oh, these candlesticks, they're my mother's candlesticks, my grandmother's candlesticks. Uh, this talus, my grandfather wore this talus. Uh, you know, all these different things. We have these, these like, you know, physical, uh, you know, pieces of, of history that we hold on to. We say, this is my link, this is my connection to the past. And the truth is we have an obligation to set up links to the future. And that comes through us really investing time and energy and making sure that there are tangible, tangible Jewish ideas that are coming 
from our tangible Jewish observance. You know, if your grandfather had a talus, make sure you have a talus. Your great-grandfather had to fill in, make sure you have to fill in. When you have to fill in and your children see that you're putting on to fill in, that has a very big impact on the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren. Your grandmother had candlesticks, had Shabbos candlesticks, make sure that you have Shabbos candlesticks. So not just candlesticks that once a year that you use, but if you use it every Shabbos, this is what sears it into their memory. They will know this forever. Um, you know, whatever it may be, any time that you get involved in doing a mitzvah, any time that you ensure that there is a physical proof that you've been involved in Judaism, that gives the greatest link to the future. That gives us the greatest hope that the ultimate redemption will come. And so uh, this, is, uh, this is a very powerful lesson that we learned from the Rebbe. And the Rebbe learns it from, from, from analyzing in great detail uh, Rashi. And, um, and we see that in general, the Rebbe was very much, um, had a very strong focus on the idea of visuals when it comes to Judaism. For example, for example, in 1987, the Rebbe made a very big uh, emphasis that every Jewish child in their room, they should have a Torah book, like a Torah, a Torah book, like you know, five books of Moses. They should have a prayer book and they should have their own charity box. And that charity box should have their name on it. And the Rebbe said, explained, that when the child comes into his room, you know, his room, that's his private space. That's where they have their dolls. That's where they have their working desk. That's where they have whatever, whatever kids have in their room. But in addition to that, the child should know that their room is not just their private space where they can sleep or play or do homework and things like that. But this is also where I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish in my room. I do Jewish things here. I learn Torah from this physical book that I can touch, that I can open. A tablet's not good enough. Tablets don't work all the time, right? Tablets, they, they die, they, they break, they get lost. A book is something physical you can open up. You crack, the, you know, crack the book open and you turn the pages and you see how the pages start to yellow as a result of usage that shows that you're involved, that shows that you're invested. Now the prayer book, they want to say a prayer, they want to say the modani, they want to say a blessing. They open up the book and they're able to read inside. And when they have a charity box there and every single morning they take a coin or a dollar, they put it into the charity box and their room becomes a place where they become philanthropists on their level, that has a lasting impact on their approach to Judaism. And you can be sure that when they're going to have a home of their own, they're going to make sure that that home has Torah books and has prayer books and has a charity box. Obviously, it should have a mezuzah on the door. All of these things are so crucial to ensuring that we have a physical link to the past and a physical link to the future. Just like Jacob, in his prophetic vision, wanted to make sure not just that the Jewish people would have acacia wood to build their tabernacle in 210 years, but he wanted that throughout the 210 years, throughout the painful process until <clears throat> they should have a physical manifestation of that future hope, a physical reminder that their ultimate goal in this world is to build a tabernacle, a dwelling place for God. And with that, I think what we, the lesson we can take from this is that we should ensure that our own homes are a, are, 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 are a, are a tabernacle for God. Um, make sure that have, we have a mezuzah on the door, to have a kosher kitchen, to have Jewish books in the house, to make sure that every Shabbos, when a child walks into the home, they can, and not just the child, when we walk into the home, we should see that it's a home that's prepared for Shabbos, there's candlesticks on the table, 
there is challah, all of these physical things, this is what makes all the difference. And may God help us that all of these physical uh, links and connections to our past and to our future should bring us to the ultimate redemption, which should happen immediately, uh, hopefully today. And uh, that, with that, that ends our class for, for today. Are there any questions, comments, ideas? I have a question. Sure. Um, on, on page five here, it talks about um, the source for this uh, commentary and the stuff about Rashi is, comes from Bereshis Rabbah. I think that's a mistake, actually. Let me tell you where it comes from. That's a, that's a mistake on the, I'll have to mention it to them. It comes from a book called Klole Rashi. The rules of Rashi, page seventy-seven and page one fifty-four. So, okay. Because yeah, I was going to say, isn't Bereshis Rabbah written before Rashi was born? Many, many years. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, yeah, I'll have to point it out to them. Yes, Rochelle. We can't. I can't hear you. Is that better? Yeah, I hear you. I think it's ironic that Rashi uh, focused on the literal meaning of the text rather than the lives and personalities of the rabbis. Because ironically, as history turned out, we know almost nothing about Rashi. And Rashi could not have known that that would be the case. It's an interesting thing that you mentioned. First of all, we do, we do know a great deal about him. We do know a great deal about him. Um, and also, I just want to remind you that, that Rashi in this specific work doesn't focus on the lives of the rabbis, in this specific work. But he had other works. He has a commentary on the Talmud. Uh, he has many other commentaries. So, so it, 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 you know, I, I once heard... Um, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was once talking, it was a conversation about faith. And he said, he said it was, it was very, it was very disturbing to him that some of his colleagues wanted to deduce from the fact that the Talmud does not have many discussions about faith. They wanted to deduce from that, that the Talmudic rabbis were not obsessed with faith. <laughs> they were obsessed with the legalist, the le you know, the legal situation of Torah and faith was, was you know, a separate issue. They said, how can you say such a thing? The prayer book was authored by the very same rabbis. You open up the prayer book, it's, it's filled with, with messages of faith and ideas and deep concepts of faith. They said the rabbis had a very keen understanding for genre. And when you, when you start to create a certain uh, work, uh, you stick to the genre. So if the genre is legalistic, keep matters of faith out of it because it's all about legal stuff. If it's about faith, we're going to stick to faith. If it's about homiletics, we'll stick to homiletics. So Rashi, when he writes his commentary on the Torah, his genre is literal meaning. Let's deal with the literal meanings, and we're going to stick through it throughout, and, and very, very strongly. Um, and, and so that, that was the genre of his explanation on the Torah. There are other works of Rashi and of other great rabbis that, that teach us the other parts, the other ideas that are also equally important. 